Welcome to Herb W. Morgan's Slaying Bulls and Bears, a podcast about economics, markets, investing, politics, and profit. Every Monday, in less than 20 minutes, Wall Street portfolio manager Herb W. Morgan distills the complex and complicated into the simple and sensical. Here's Herb now. Good morning, Monday, October 11th, 2021, Columbus Day here in the United States. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer at Efficient Market Advisors. We are a business of Cantor Fitzgerald Investment Advisors. You can follow me on Twitter for more frequent economic musings and updates or on LinkedIn. Also, this is available via subscription on our website with the slides that you're possibly seeing right now. But it's also available as a podcast, Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, Deezer, you name it. It's available, and the name is Slaying Bulls and Bears. We look to make the complex and complicated simple and sensical. Presentation is prepared for use by both investors and financial advisors, each of whom are expected to make their own investment decisions. Nothing contained in this presentation is investment advice. There are no recommendations for sales or purchases of any securities. Everything is purely for informational purposes only. We had a great week in the S&P 500, equity markets across the board. Leadership came just barely, but came by a couple of basic points in emerging markets. Strong performance globally, therefore, uh, the all-country world index up about three quarters of a percent. We got our little correction, sort of. We didn't get an official 10% correction. We got to about 6% down on the S&P 500. We got to about 8% down on the NASDAQ. Um, that was about it. This is, we're in a bull market. We're in a long run bull market. We like to see it. What we are starting to see is that interest rates seem to be breaking out of that ultra low level, possibly in response to inflation, possibly in response to the, um, uh, the debate over the debt ceiling in the United States Congress, and possibly in response to the Fed signaling pretty darn clearly that they will be buying less bonds and less mortgage-backed securities probably starting next month, winding that up so that they stop buying. No talk of when they'll run down their balance sheet uh, or start to raise interest rates, but that's got bonds on the retreat and interest rates moving higher. We did get over 1.6, 160 on the U.S. 10-year last week. We even saw a little bit, interestingly, a little bit of a you know third of a percent down in high yield debt last week at a week when small and mid-cap stocks did okay. Remember, there's a lot of correlation between high yield and equities, and uh, that could just be a reflection of the interest rate situation. Longer the maturity, longer the duration, the harder they fall. So the 20-plus year Treasury index, which has a far longer average maturity and duration than the ag, was down, as you can see, almost three times as much last week, almost two, three times as much. So let's move into it. Let's get into the economic data. And we had August factory orders uh, beat expectations. You see factory orders here, always a very volatile series. But given our backup in demand, massive amounts of demand, very low inventories, lots of backlogs, we're getting just strings of positive months in factory orders. So you a pattern we really don't ever see uh, maybe first coming out of recession for a few quarters, but this is a long-running streak now, positive gains in factory orders. Uh, it just goes to show you there's plenty of demand in our economy. Uh, our problem continues to be supply. 
supply chain, but lots of demand. No chance of, an, of a demand-based recession in the near future, in my opinion. We also got a record trade deficit, unfortunately. Trade deficit, remember, is a subtraction from GDP. The GDP, GDP formula, C plus I plus G, consumption plus investment plus government spending plus exports, but minus imports. So that's a subtraction of GDP, the gap widened, but it's not always in itself on an absolute level bad. Uh, we had imports rise 1.4%, that's great, almost 290 billion, uh, but exports rose, oh, but, which means we're a strong consumer, but exports rose as well, meaning the rest of the world started to recover. But because we in the US recover first, because we're a very wealthy consumer-driven nation, and because we have an abundance of money flowing around in our economy, we're buying more stuff. And that also, that therefore fueled the trade deficit, which is not a positive for GDP. We got the final reading from uh, services, um, uh, both ISM and Marquette last week. Marquette for September fell a little bit to a still very high 54.9 in beat expectations. That signals expansion, not as fast as we were expanding a few months ago. You can see there we reached 70 at one point. In terms of the Institute for Supply Management or ISM, similar kind of story, rose from 61.7 to a very high 61.9. And that was a bit above the expectations for 59.9. Last week, to a certain degree, was about jobs, jobs reports. We did get excellent news on weekly claims for unemployment. If you remember, we had had three or four weeks in a row where initial claims for unemployment were going higher. And we're sitting here all going, why could this be the, the additional federal unemployment benefits have run out? Many states you know, decline them sooner to try to get people to get back to work sooner. Uh, but some states ran them all the way to the end, which was September. And then what California did, I showed you that last week, California said, well, we have this other federal money, it's pandemic relief money, we're gonna go ahead and allocate it to more uh, unemployment claims. So you offer money, you're going to get claims. There was a huge spike for several weeks in California's uh, un, um, initial claims for unemployment. So that was driving the national number higher. Last week, however, the national number dropped to 326,000, well below estimates. California still came in with a pretty big number, 68,000 people, but it was not as bad as the prior week. So if California weren't goofing around the way they are, we'd be, we'd be probably in the 300, low, low, low 300, perhaps even in the 200s, which signifies a very healthy jobs market, jobs economy. We have a healthy jobs market organically and naturally, but there's a distortion in there because of these extra benefits that now just California is the last state. We also saw continuing claims fall from 2.8 down to 2.7. We got conflicting news from the two jobs reports last week. First, we got ADP, Automatic Data Processing, they're a payroll company. They use a statistical method based on their own volume of business where they saw payrolls, not patrols, but payrolls rise 568,000, well ahead of expectations. Services jobs picked up the lion's share of 466,000, big game of leisure and hospitality. Uh, but it did revise August down just a tad uh, from 374 to 340. Meanwhile, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which uses a 
different statistical methodology. They said that payrolls only rose by 194,000, which is well below, well below the estimate of 500,000. But they revised August up more than 130,000, uh, higher than originally stated. So maybe September gets revised higher as well. Either way, the unemployment rate fell to a very low, great number, 4.8%. The problem is the participation rate fell as well. So, you know, you have to take these numbers, you have to look at multiple months, quarters, you have to know what's going on behind the scenes, like I mentioned the California situation. Um, you have to look at participation rates. I would call these reports inconclusive and quite mixed. Certainly not a positive, and certainly not a reflective, not reflective of the demand for labor. We're hearing stories over and over and over again about the inability to get people willing to come to work. Uh, we're hearing stories of you know 200,000 openings and for, for 20,000 openings rather of certain airlines for flight attendants, um, uh, food service workers very reluctant to come back, hard to come back. Uh, places where school and childcare is not compatible with, you know, what they might make. All these different things happen. But here's the good news: we would, we had seen a nice long string of gains in average hourly earnings. That's net. That's after inflation. We had seen the, the standard of living. You can see here going higher for wage earners after many years. You can see a very flat, well, two percent, but better. We've gotten much better. Then, of course, the pandemic, the shutdown, the forced clothing, closing of the economy, but now we're seeing average hourly earning earnings come back because that demand for labor is very, very strong. Six-tenths of a percent, uh, and now up 4.6 from a year ago. That's real. That's after the effects of inflation. So that's what you want to see. That's the promise of capitalism is to rise the level and the standard of living of all people um, and certainly to make the, the, the wage earners be better off year after year is one of the primary goals. Here's a graph which shows job openings, which is the blue line. Now this is a quarterly, or no, yeah, this is a, this will get a 930 number here this week. So this is every two months number. We have 11 million open jobs at the end of July. Now we get the unemployed on a monthly basis. So that goes through September. We're looking at 7.7 .7 million. That's a big, big gap. We had gaps before. You can see in 1819, when you have that gap where there's more uh, jobs, that's the blue line, than there are unemployed, that's the gold line, you raise real wages and you raise the standard of living. This is desirable, but the size of this gap is absolutely unprecedented, which could at this point, because it's so much bigger than the gap we had back here in 2018, 2019, what this could end up doing is continuing further in this cause of inflation. Now, what is inflation? There's this big debate right now. We know we have it. We're seeing gasoline prices go higher. We're seeing the price of everything we do go higher. Buying an airline ticket, staying in a hotel, wages are going up. Some people are going up enough to compensate. Some people are not. But the bottom line is inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and services. It seems so simple. But think about what we did when we shut down the U.S. economy a year and a half ago. We shut down the, 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 the supply, right, the supply side. So we, we closed restaurants, movie theaters, sporting events, factories, offices, 
uh, non-COVID-related hospitalizations, elective procedures, uh, everything. We had people forced to literally stay at home. So we cut off the production of goods and services. We reduced supply. At the same time, we wanted to compensate people for their loss of their jobs, companies for their lack loss of business. So we just gave money like we've never given before. It was just transfer payments of massive amounts of cash. So you have more money chasing fewer services. It was the textbook definition of inflation and it was manufactured, it was created, and now we're dealing with it. A year and a half later, we're trying to get the economy open, trying to get the people back to work, trying to get the factories reopened, and it has caused massive supply chain bottlenecks. It's really been a disaster. Now, should we or shouldn't we have done it? I don't know. I'm not a medical professional. I am an economist, so I know the damage it would do to their, our economy. It did that damage. I know the inflationary aftermath as we try to reopen the economy that it would create. It's obvious, too much money chasing too few goods and services. This graph, a little ugly, you can see the red, red bars of the recession. The white line is backlogs of orders. These are orders that people want to place for goods and services, but can't get them because we're trying too hard to make them. We can't get parts, we can't get supplies, we can't get computer chips, we can't get people to come back to work. So the inventories are down here at an all-time low. So even when we got out of the 08 financial crisis recession, we didn't have a lot of backlogs in the middle of the recession. Coming out of the recession, we had backlogs, but not nearly the high level of today. And we had low inventories, but not nearly the low level of today. So what this means is, if right now, we're just we're literally creating this inflationary pressure. Now, the Federal Reserve believes that it could be transitory. Economists are split. They're debating. Will this inflation naturally go away as we slowly work through this thing? Will used car prices come down? Will airline prices come down? Will the year-over-year -year change in inflation go from this four-plus percent back down to the Fed's target of 2%? Maybe it will. Some economists think that it won't, and they cite this. This is the growth of the money supply. This is money in circulation in our economy. You can see, in a result of the pandemic, this is the massive amounts of money. Normally, they say to have a well-functioning, smooth-functioning economy, you do have to increase your money supply slowly, to reflect the larger and growing nature of the economy, to facilitate commerce in an economy. But what we did was we took it and we turbocharged it and just threw in massive amounts of money. Well, and remember what we did at the same time. So everybody couldn't go to work, couldn't build things, couldn't make things, couldn't deliver movie services or shopping services, only the necessities, only the necessities. And so too much money chasing too few good, too few, goods and services. To be fair, the Federal Reserve will point to this graph, which is the blue line here at the top is exactly the line I just showed you. That's the money supply. It keeps going higher and higher. But what we're seeing is that the velocity of money, the great economist Milton Friedman always said, inflation is always everywhere a monetary phenomenon, in that when you have more money, except in the absence of velocity, so with the velocity of money has been declining, meaning it's not going necessarily back into circulation. In fact, you can see the effects of that money in asset prices, right? You've seen the, the stratospheric rise in both your 
value of your home and in the value of your other financial assets like stocks, right? This is a result of the money chasing these things. So the Fed believes that the velocity of money will begin to pick back up as the economy comes back organically, and then they can, they can start taking this money supply out of the economy. This has never been done, never been tried. I don't know what, who's right. We don't know who's right. It's a very high stakes game. It is a risky game. I don't know that they had much, much other choice. I do think though, that here in the United States where the Fed, if you ask them about fiscal policy, they won't comment because they're independent, they're not supposed to. And the fiscal policy makers won't comment on, on the monetary policy, which is the Fed. And therefore, I think you have a problem. I don't know what the solution is, but you can shut down goods and services and throw money at it. You're going to get inflation, you're getting it now. Uh, and how you get back out of it, reverse it, and reverse the expectations of consumers is going to be debated for the foreseeable future. Lastly, last week, we got consumer credit. It rose 14 billion, estimates were for 17 and a half billion. A rise in consumer credit is a sign, right, of people being willing, that's an expansion of the economy as well. Uh, being willing to take on credit, being confident in their job prospects, their ability to pay off that credit. Um, so that's, you can see a string of positive gains there as well. This week, we're going to get into earnings today. Remember, today is Columbus Day. So the, the markets, the bond markets are closed because it's government bond markets, but the equity markets are open. You can even trade fixed income ETFs, which trade like equities today, but I don't expect any movement since the bond market itself, uh, you know, the yields which they're priced off of the treasuries is not moving. Uh, small business optimism, the JOLTS report that I talked about earlier, expects to come in again around 11 million. Consume CPI and PPI, minutes from the last Fed meeting, uh, New York State manufacturing retail sales, business inventories, import and exports, and consumer sentiment. I don't think anything is of major importance this week. I think we're going to, uh, and we're not going to be worried this week, particularly about the uh, debt ceiling since we've got a little bit of a reprieve there. Um, Congress is going to continue to debate its problems. I see this as being a quiet week. Uh, but the week after that, we get right into uh, earnings reports, and we've had plenty of downward revisions. As normal, companies beat, but the question is how much they beat by and what kind of guidance they give going forward. Uh, that will be all come into focus in the last week of October and into November. I think the correction is probably over. Uh, so that's that. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. Give me a likes and a thumbs up. I think it helps. I'm not sure why, but it's important. And I thank you for tuning in. And we'll be back to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Slaying Bulls and Bears. If you'd like to download the slides for this week's podcast, go to www.efficient-portfolios.com and join our mailing list. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate us online, and share with a friend if you found this helpful. See you next week.